Hello, Silvertown. Welcome to the Silvertown Podcast. Let's jump on that sober train and ride right into the incredible, wonderful world of sobriety. Uh, I just want to mention really quick, silvertownpodcast.com. We have tons of resources there. Come over there and, and check it out. Get into Todd's blogs. That's a learning resource all of its own. Your body on booze. Uh, sobriety discussions, and you can build a sober toolbox there too. And the IAS app, which almost everybody that is contributing with Silvertown Podcast and SilvertownPodcast.com has gotten sober and where we've all met each other, including this missus who is who is with me right now. What's up, Silvertown? So glad to be here. Stoked to be here with you today, Drifter. It's always an honor. I just love, here we are. Welcome to another edition of This Naked Mind. What are we going to call this? It's kind of a book club. It's more like a book cult because we believe in the way, the truth, and the light (laughs) of this naked mind. (laughs) This is what got us sober. Yeah, a thousand percent. And so this is us digging into This Naked Mind. And today we're going to be going over chapter two. Um, do we want to do a little overview? Yeah, but you know what? First of what? all, did you just have to get a new book? I ordered it. I had to order a new book on Amazon. It's coming hopefully next week because I gave my book away. Again. <laughs> she keeps Again. giving her books away, you guys. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I talked to this guy. Here's what's cool is I actually sent him our last episode of chapter one. Oh. And he said, wow, that's powerful. So it's just, it's somebody who I, who is really dear to me, who I've, I've known a lot of my life. He's an older man. He's my father-in-law's friend. And I just really look up to him. I really admire him. And he said that, you know, he's working on his battle with the demon. And I said, this will help, bro. And um, I, I just gave it to him because he goes, no, no, no. I'll just take a picture of it and I'll buy it. And it's like, when was the last time you took you bought a book that you had a picture of in your phone? <laughs> right. It's like, right. no, dude, take this book. It's got writing in it. It's got highlights. It's all dog-eared. It's got some good vibes. And don't worry, I'll get another one. And when I buy it, I'm going to buy three. So <laughs> that way I can give more away because this book is where it's at. You should talk to Annie Grace about buying bulk. Maybe you can get 50% off. <laughs> right. Hey, girl, I'm your number one distributor over here. Right. I need bulk. Can you please give me bulk? I uh, know. I, I think with Eric and Spiegelman with Rewired, we can buy bulk. Um, That's awesome. She was mentioning that. So if we get into the Choctaw Nation, which I yeah. just sent out that email. Yeah. We could buy bulk and uh, get, because there's a lot of poverty um, yeah. in the Choctaw Nation. Yeah, So Totally. Yeah, that would be because I was talking to a guy this morning and I was mentioning about the addiction that runs rapid in the Choctaw community. And he's like, well, we also have a lot of poverty and a lot of people in rural rural areas where they can't get uh, away from where they're at. So doing these rewired Zooms there is going to be hopefully it happens and it's going to be a big deal. Get those people. I'm stoked for you. Yes, I'm stoked for you. Some. um where they can socialize. I mean, if you can't do it in person, how about how about a Zoom, right? I know. Just get out of your head, you know, meet with other people and go, dude, you're not the only one here. You're not the only one dealing with this. And, the, and, and speaking of Zooms, let's mention the IAS Zooms. I mean, those yeah. things have really taken off. And I see so much growth with people attending these Zooms. I do. I, I know I made a lot of growth attending those Zooms. I know that I... Um, I kind of thought it was only where the cool kids were. And then I got invited. And then I thought I would kind of hang my week on that meeting. And I'd go, all right, cool. I'm going to be there and I'm going to meet up with my buddies and tell them about my week. I'm going to hang in there this whole damn week so I can tell my buddies about it on Saturday or Wednesday. Yeah, you because you do the Wednesday one where they have a lot of people from the UK that go to that. I love it. Yeah, I do. I love them. It's just amazing when you realize that getting sober is a lot in your own head, but there's a lot of other people that are in their own heads getting sober. And it's a, it's the same path, man. When you realize you're walking the same path, 
with other people, it's, it's a beautiful feeling of just cohesion and flow and collaboration. So you go into it thinking, I'm not going to talk. I don't know any of these people. And then for me, I mean, I'm me, but the next thing, you know, you're, you're meeting somebody and you're sharing your heart with somebody and they're sharing theirs. And it's rad, dude. Look at dry mountain mama. She put a post up that she was in a zoom, one of her first zooms. She ended up in a breakout room with uh, Lilo. She uh, was crying the whole time. She was scared to talk. That was her, I think one of her first zooms. Yeah. You, you know what she's doing now? She's podcasting for Sobertown. Yeah. Julie and yep. Steve rewired. They're they're going over the rewired book. That's how far That's she's so cool. And also, I think she hosts Thursday night, the Thursday night parent. Oh, I don't want to go to that. That's so cool. That's yeah, so cool. That is cool. So That's... I mean, look where that Zoom has brought her to. It's about community. And I think we are gonna actually we touch on community a little bit in this chapter about the power of you know what a community can do. Do you want to kick like us off? Yeah, kick yeah. us off. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of This Mrs. and Drifters, This <laughs> Naked Mind. This is going to be chapter two. So in chapter two, she's going to dig into the drinker or the drink. Okay. And so this is part one, the drinker, where we're looking at just the drinker. We're not talking about the alcohol yet. We're just talking about ourselves. And there's this blame game thing where she's trying to, we try to decide you know, where the blame lies. And there's three parts of the blame game. There's the blame, blame, part one, me, you know, where you beat yourself up, you vow to be better. You think you're weak, willpowered. Okay. And then blame game part two, which kind of goes into the AA theory of the allergy um, about, you know, how the drinker interacts with the substance, the allergy theory, which we'll talk about in depth. And then the blame, 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 the blame, blame, the blame game part three, which is an alcoholic gene, which is whether or not, you know, alcoholism is genetically, physically, you know, traceable. So that's, that's kind of where we're going to go. There's a lot in here. I know it sounded, there's a lot in here. So let's start. So let's, let me do a disclaimer here real quick. So for yeah, the drifter, of jump a on in there for, for the people in AA, we're not trying to do dispel what you believe we're just sharing another side of what somebody else believes uh, totally before we we're get exploring into, all the ideas right and and not and this is part of her chapter of what she's talking about so go ahead yeah. boom all right who's so to blame she starts off um let me, i love the quote she does a quote at the beginning of every chapter and this one says the world we have created is a process of our thinking it cannot be changed without changing our thinking Albert Einstein. That quote is particularly powerful to me because I was a communication major in college and I did a lot of studying about social construction. And that is the thing of, you know, our world is what we made it to be. Social construction is, is a huge concept of just how we think, act, and behave. Um, there was this one article I remember reading about <clears throat> these people who were doing kind of these like down home drag races, sort of, you know, kind of country style drag races. And they had like barrels with like chicken wire, like separating, like where the people were watching and where these cars were like racing around this track. And they're like, that's the fence. That's where the cars are. Stay behind the fence. That's a and then one of the cars got out of control, spun out, killed a bunch of people. And it's like, well, you guys, that was a chicken wire fence. I mean, it might as well have been yard, you know, but our social construction goes, well, that's a fence. This is the line. We're safe behind the line. And you go, well, in the facts, the reality is that's like a, a, a one ton of steel. So that's a little tiny bit about what social construction is and how the world we created is a process of our thinking. We can't change our world without changing our thinking. So here we are. You know what that what? reminded me of? Because yes. I, I've not gotten off the topic since you brought it up of uh, the elephant being our subconscious, right? Dude, dude. And we can't, we can't get in there to change the direction of that elephant are thinking um, mm -hmm. unless we have a, a way to get in there. And it, he yeah, said, unless we the start world, feeding our elephant something different. Yeah. 
the world we created is a process of our thinking and cannot be changed without changing our thinking. Yep. And how do we get in there to change that thinking? Yep. Liminal exactly. thinking. And that's exactly. what she's going to be doing through this. It, this is another way of how she's um, changing our thinking yep. with, with this chapter. By thinking about our thinking. By thinking. Okay, so she's like, to find a cure, we have to understand the problem. So what's causing alcohol, the drinker or the drink? Let's talk about the drinker. So the blame game, part one, me. We've all been here. We've all done that thing where you wake up with a hangover, you beat yourself up, you count how much you've had, you try to recount what you said and did to the people you love. I mean, you're up. I used to wake up at 3 a.m. I used to wake up in the middle of the night and just chug water and just think about what a terrible person I was. And how I'm going to do better tomorrow. Did you ever do that? Cost every, every day, every day, every day. And you know, when, now that we're on this side, thinking about that used to be normal. Something that we did every day of our lives. And now that we're on this side, just thinking about that is fucking torture. Feeling that way about yourself every day. That's, that's one thing that keeps me sober. Cause that's one thing yeah. I, I'm not going back to live like Boom. Exactly. And, and that way of living, it was the only thing we thought there was, but yeah. So, um, but we got up every day, we got up every day promising, right. I'm not, I don't want to wake up like this again and I'm not going to do this again. I'm done. This is it. I'm done. Did you do that? Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. For 10 years, I'm going to drink less. I'm only going to drink on the weekends. I'm going to drink every other. And then what happens? Five o'clock rolls around. Ding. When you're doing all that, when you're when you're right in the middle of that, you're feeling so lost. You're sitting there blaming yourself. You got the the guilt, the shame, the remorse. For me, mm-hmm. also thoughts of suicide. So uh-huh. here I am planning my morning, or when I woke up, I'm not doing this again. As I'm checking my phone to see what damage that caused, or looking at uh-huh. my wife to see if she's crying or not. Right. This, that's exactly how I woke up every morning, vowing not to go back. Yep. And then at five o'clock, that elephant walks right over to that wine cabinet or whatever, <laughs> that beer fridge, doesn't it? It does. So, and so we are stuck in this cycle where we are, we blame ourselves. Yes. It's easy to do. Our family blames us. Society blames us. Our friends look at us and go, God, why can't she just quit drinking? She should control herself. I should control myself. Why can't I? But, and that's and, what we're taught, right? I mean, this is what everybody's, yep. they've learned. If you can't control your, dr- your drinking, it's your fault. Yeah, absolutely. And we live in a constant state of self-loathing. And it's confusing, too, because you want to stop, but you can't. So right. you start to hate yourself and feel weak and out of control. And I think that that also contributes to the thing of, like, you hate yourself, you're weak and out of control, you have no willpower. And so you try to hide it because that's shameful. That's ugly. It is. So then you're trying to hide it. You're not going, I don't know, you guys, I think I need to look at my drinking. You're going, oh, it's fine. I can do just one. You know, you just, you try to act like you don't have a problem. I'm doing my nails. Yeah. She's doing her nails as we're talking. I'm um, doing my nails. I just, I got a busy life. <laughs> you do. I, uh, yeah. same, same here. It's like, like you got to multitask. But I don't oh, know if man. I could do my nails and do this at the same time like you. No, no. I'm going to get up and start sweeping the floor if I don't, if I'm not sitting here doing my nails. Okay, so we think, like, why can't we just get it together and be responsible, take control? And it's like other people seem to be able to drink just fine, you know? And they don't seem to have a problem. And so we feel weak-willed and like we're terrible people. We think we have weak willpower. We think it's a personality flaw. But then she goes, well, is there anything else that you're weak-willed at? Which that's a loaded question for me. What do you think? Well, I do. Food now. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yes. There are some things that get me, but I I think I'm actually a strong-willed person, but not with alcohol. It defeated me day after day after day, year Uh after year. Yep. Year Nine years this year. last time. Actually, yep. addiction has defeated me most of my life, to be honest with you. Yep. Yep. The elephant in my head made the rules of my life. And you were just along for the ride, barely hanging on. Now, my conscious mind is supposed to be the gatekeeper of everything that filters in and out of my mind. 
and I'm just, I'm just like in for the ride, wherever that yep. elephant takes me. Um, you know, what's so funny. There's some stuff on the internet that I want to share. There's a funny meme that says, cause she's talking about how, if you were just like, if only you could quit, you could finally be like all the other people, you know, who seem to be in control of their alcohol, who seem to be able to take it or leave it. It's like, I wish I could just drink like a normal person. There's a meme on the internet that says, if I could drink like normal people, I'd do it all the time. <laughs> That's pretty funny, huh? And there's another one that says, I hear there's a, a pill that can cure addiction. I wonder what two will do. <laughs> Why can't we exercise our free will? Is there something apparently undiagnosable that makes certain people less able to control their alcohol consumption than others? That's kind of how she finishes that part. Totally, totally. And, and that's a, such a great question because it really is this messy thing where they go, oh, it's a disease, it's a physical defect. And so she goes into what is an alcoholic? How do I know if I am one? And what what is it that really differentiates a casual drinker, a moderate drinker, a heavy drinker, and a problem drinker, and a full-blown alcoholic? And uh, there's this guy, pay, according to the book, Paying the Tab by Philip J. Cook. Oh, you do this part. Do You well, do this part. This is the stuff you were telling me about. Well, I just think it's amazing that 87% of all Americans drink. That's 87%. And then... <laughs> If you have one glass of wine at night with dinner, you're in the top 30% of all drinkers. You're in the top 30%. Then yeah. if you have two glasses, you're in the top 20% of, of all drinkers. That means 80%. You drink more than 80% of the people. 80% of the people drink less than you do. And that's two glasses of wine a night. I wish I could drink two glasses of wine a night. Yeah. What does a so, bottle mean? <laughs> yeah. It's like, man, I was at the top of that unicorn status, wasn't I? So if you drink two glasses of wine a night, you drink more than 80% of humanity. That's huge. So she goes to talk. She says that alcoholism isn't strictly defined by how much or how often you drink. It's an invisible and ill-defined line that categorizes that categorizes the true alcoholic. And I think that's the hardest thing because people go, well, I'm not an alcoholic. I only drink. I mean, there's all these different, I think alcoholism is definitely a spectrum. And I think that there's a lot of different definitions of alcoholism. It's not one thing. Well, the, know, the line not, is arbitrary. They have no idea where the line is. It's arbitrary. Yeah. 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 Which is why it's real easy to skate away from whenever you don't want to identify. And there's no standard definition, right? No, no. And she's saying, so how do you know you're, you actually have a problem? I like it when she says that most people believe that alcoholics are somehow different from other people. They're different from us. That maybe alcoholics have some type of defect. We're not sure if it's physical, mental, or emotional, but they, those alcoholics are not like us, regular drinkers. And that line is so fuzzy and it's so easy to spend years on that line. Right. And so here we are, we're drinking and then we're trying to figure out if we have a problem or not. We don't have anybody that can diagnose us. So we have to figure this out ourselves mm -hmm. because we have this disease that nobody can diagnose. Yeah. And it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of Google searches and um that's obscure and vague and then it's also you're still battling that elephant going am i an alcoholic do i really have a problem and society is telling you that it's happy and beautiful and wonderful and exotic and adventurous and sexy and attractive but it's like you're the one fighting with your spouse every night you're the one yelling at your kids you're the one waking up with cobwebs in your head you're the one not performing at work it's like well i don't know is it a problem like you were mentioning, we have all these problems in our lives, fighting with our spouses and everything. But here's the thing. We wake up that way every morning. We're knowing that we have a problem. We're resolved that we're not going to go back to that problem. Then we have society telling us we're stronger, we're better, we're faster, we're sexier and all this other mm -hmm. stuff. So by the time five o'clock hits, we don't have a problem anymore, do we? Yeah. Let's get back yeah. on that drinking train and let's continue going. 
Mm-hmm. And I think there's another thing where when you're stressed about something, you drink about it. So it's like, I'm drinking more because I'm worried about my drinking. So here she talks about how there's no really specific mental or physical defect. There's not this one thing we can put our finger on. And she's like, there's a doctor in Italy who's preparing to transplant a human head. Like surely with all the advent of uh, medical, medical technology, we can diagnose this one thing. And I think it's, I do think it's because it's so ingrained in our society. We have to look at that part too. Big money has bought everything. Yep. Right. I mean, yep. they they bought our almost our consciousness. They they paid for it. So what we think? Absolutely, absolutely. I used to have, I had this neighbor, and she had a lot of strong opinions about society and about how we're all asleep and you know we're all getting duped and stuff like that. And the Matrix. We would always. Yeah, which, yes. And I, and I do, I, you know, I did, we had a lot of great conversations about it, but man, she's a huge drinker. And, and as soon as I, whenever I quit drinking and I was reading this book, I kept thinking about her and I was like, but you're still asleep because you're buying it. Right. You're just, you're checked out. All that's your, that's your umbilical cord. You're plugged yes. in. Yes. <laughs> yes. And like, you're, you're still buying it. So here we are. Um, Sarah, we're the only ones who can diagnose our disease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what we're told, right? Well, you're the only one. You even go to the doctor. Well, no, you have to decide if you're an alcoholic. And they may talk you through some things, right? But you got to, you've got to de- decide this for yourself. I think that's another one of those things of society where it's just nobody wants to tell you, hey, it sounds like you should probably quit drinking. Nobody wants to hear that. Right. And people are going to be combative back. And so nobody wants to deal with that. It's like, I don't know, bro, only you can figure that out. And it's like, I can, you can line 300 people up in front of me and they tell me a little bit about themselves. I'm like, you should probably quit drinking. You should probably quit drinking. <laughs> like, but nobody wants to say that. Nobody wants to hear it. But for the most part, like, I think a lot of people have a drinking problem. Well, when you look around, 87% of people are drinking. And then if you go out on Friday or Saturday nights or wherever, go out to dinner. Most people are drinking. It just, it, yeah. it's the norm. It just seems normal. It's the norm. Exactly. And that's what we're going against is the greater society. We are. So I love it when the genetics lab at the University of Utah has studied the role of genes and addiction. And they confirm that, you know, even if there is a genetic connection of someone in your life who, who does have a problem with alcohol, here we go. Someone cannot become an alcoholic without repeatedly drinking alcohol. Boom. There it is. You're not, even though you may have a, a gene, you're not genetically disposed. You don't have to, mm-hmm. you don't have to become an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. But if you, you drink and you repeatedly drink, mm-hmm. uh, that gene may get triggered, right? That's the thing is like you're repeatedly drinking alcohol. So it's going to cause a problem but if you repeat if you repeat biting your nails yeah you're gonna end up being a nail biter a lot of people say well you have a disease because your brain's changing well our brains are made to change we're humans mm-hmm. we're not mm-hmm. like a frog mm-hmm. where we're, our brain is pre-programmed to flick out when a fly comes by right yeah our brains are made to change so we're not we're not pre-programmed these are learned behaviors. And we, when you keep doing something over and over with our brains, it's going to become a habit. Totally. And then without at you add alcohol, it becomes a habitual habit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's also an addictive substance. So your brain sort of kind of calls back out for it, but that's in the later chapters. Right. So she says that, um, Even in responsible drinkers, everyone who drinks is susceptible and perhaps on the path to alcohol dependence. I assert that over time, with the right level exposure, anyone can develop a physical dependence on alcohol. Anybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. Same with cigarettes, same with cocaine. With over time, with the right exposure to the substance, you're going to develop a dependence. Like sugar, anything. What, they, what they're telling society 
is that that's, that's abnormal. What you becoming dependent is abnormal because yeah. regular drinkers don't get that way. Yeah. 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 So now, and that's the big trick. Right. Right. That's the thing that's keeping a lot of people trapped is that you're fine. It's them. Yes. You're not an alcoholic. It's them. And so that, I think that keeps a lot of people trapped. I know it kept me trapped. I was like, well, it's not me. And it's like, there I was, you know, with cobwebs in my mouth and dirt in my skull. And then um, somebody else is sitting there. Well, look at them, but I can control yeah. my drinking. I'm not like yes. that. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Looking at me. All right. So the blame game 2.0, AA and the allergy theory. Okay. So basically, a, the old, the history of AA is that um, there were these two doctors, Dr. Silkworth and Doc, and a guy named Bill Wilson. Dr. Silkworth tried to cure Bill Wilson. Okay. And he couldn't. But Bill Wilson went to this thing that is what we know now is AA. And Dr. Silkworth wrote this letter and said, you know, it's probably because he has an allergy to alcohol is why I couldn't cure him and why AA did, basically. And so AA carries this theory that you have this allergy to alcohol and you have to avoid it in order to stay healthy. And it's a little tricky because it's like, well, how do you have an allergy to something that only becomes a problem after you've had prolonged exposure to it. So what I think this is, you know, it sounds like it's a doctor, a hot shot doctor who failed. So he's trying to come up with something that says, well, the only reason I failed is because of this. So it's, and that's Dr. You know, Silkworth. Yes. Yes. So he kind of came up with something. Also, this was written in like 1934. So right. what we know of what an allergy is and what it is, you know, then I I think that the concept, I think we can poke a lot of holes in it, but I think it serves the members of AA because they simply say, that is something I cannot have. I'm going to stay away. And it helps. You know, them. they can call it fucking black magic if they wanted to. Right. They could call it anything they want is how, how, you know, the way I see it, the allergy thing, it's, it's, it was written in 1934. I think somebody said that both these dudes were doing LSD when they were writing this book. So <laughs> it served thousands, millions of people, but you can definitely poke holes in it. <laughs> and that's, that's our disclaimer is that for the people that it works for, that's fine. But for yeah, the people that yes. it doesn't work for, Annie Grace wrote this book, and this is part of her book. Yeah. It's in here mm -hmm. where she just spells a lot of this in chapter two, and you can get it and really read it and dive into it from what she says in this book. Yeah. Um, she talks about, uh, we're going to talk about coming out as an alcoholic and um, calling it as a, a disease. So what do you think about um, calling yourself an alcoholic? I don't. I, I Because from what I've learned, I have corrupted pathways. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't have a disease. Right. So I look at myself, what's going on in my mind. And I know that there's, I have corrupted pathways where I can build new pathways. So for me, there's yeah. a process where I can, I'm healed, right. Mm -hmm. Where mm -hmm. I, I can isolate that pathway, build new pathways around it, which Mark Lewis discusses where there's, you actually increase your gray matter after you yeah. shrunk it. It actually increases when you start when you start your recovery, right? So that means the gray matter is the synapses. Those mm -hmm. synapses are the connections that go to neurons. So while mm -hmm. you're in your addiction, you're losing gray matter. You're mm -hmm. losing those synapses, right? So mm -hmm. when you get into mm -hmm. your recovery and you're learning these new tools and everything, your greater matter is actually increasing, which means you're building strong, more and stronger connections than you had before. So that one pathway that was corrupted is actually what you build around it is going to be stronger where it just shuts it down. Absolutely. So Absolutely. I don't have a disease is what I just did is I repaired something in my school. Yep. Yeah. Cause it kind of prunes. It prunes what doesn't get used. It does. And, and it makes stronger what does get used. It does. And so when you continue to use something, it's like we said, there's a, a, major freeway versus a little nature trail 
like my ex-wife used to be so in love with my ex-wife, right? Uh-huh. I mean, man, I used to fall head over the hills for her. But after she became my ex and wasn't really my focus anymore, now I, I hardly ever think of her. <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? yep. totally, totally, totally. My mind is pruned that out where one, that's all I could think about at one time was her. My wife now is my new yeah. pathway, right? Yep. And that's, she's where my focus is. And, and she's much stronger, better and faster and sexier. And <laughs> right. That's awesome. Right. So yep. that's totally exactly how pathways are built and how they're pruned. And what you don't, like you said, what you don't focus on goes away. She talks only a little bit about this coming out as an alcoholic. And she's like, look, when you come out as an alcoholic, your friends make an effort to help you abstain rather than pressuring you to drink. They support your journey. No one offers you alcohol. And, and I do, I, I do, I believe in it. I believe that there's accountability and that there's honesty when you say, you know, I'm an alcoholic and they go, oh, okay, well, she's owning it. Cause I'll tell you what, of the 87% people that don't drink, that do drink, I bet there's 80%, 87% of them that are probably in denial about whether or not they have a problem with drinking, you know? And I think that being honest and telling the truth is the first step. And I think that calling that yourself an alcoholic, I think there's something to be said for that. When they and call it a disease, what? Um, somebody just posted recently that they had to come terms with this for themselves. And they found out that it does, he, it does help him to classify himself as an alcoholic. So for yeah. some people, that's they they need to do that because it, it gives them focus. Then they're like, no, I can't do that because I am, I'm an alcoholic. Yeah, and I own my actions and I own this. Right. Um, and then she talks about how some people call it a disease. And I think that when there's a physical difference, it means you receive less blame. We don't blame people who get cancer. A disease allows for forgiveness. And if you believe that you have a disease and one sip is going to bring you back down to the pits of hell, I think it helps you walk the line. I think it does. I think it does. But here's the difference with alcohol, though. If you have this disease, you're looked down upon, right? They're not going to feel sorry for you and have marches in the street trying to raise money for you. Um, They want to shut you up. And back then when they... When they wrote the big book, they were putting people in asylums. They were giving people lobotomies. Totally. Right? Totally. Right. The kind of disease they had just wasn't acceptable. I mean, you don't want to yeah. back then. You didn't want to say that you were an alcoholic. There was a huge stigma to it versus today. Yeah. Even today, I think even today, there's a huge stigma. And I've said it to people in my life and they go, I don't think you were an alcoholic. And that's because... They drink more than I ever do. Yeah. So if I'm an alcoholic, what does that make that? You know, Um, the thing I find my personally, for me, the disease theory, it, it kind of makes it so that there's nothing you can do about it. And I think when you say I have corrupted pathways, I think that that makes it something that you can attack. Okay. So. There, she has a little bit of Dr. Silkworth's letter in here that he wrote to Bill Wilson, right? Yeah, or to the people that cured Bill Wilson. And this was a letter that Dr. Silkworth wrote to Bill Wilson. This is part of it. We doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception with our ultra modern standards, 1934, right? Ultra modern mm-hmm. standards, our scientific approach to everything. We are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside of our synthetic knowledge. So back in 1934, Dr. Silkworth is explaining why he couldn't kill Bill mm-hmm. Wilson. So then he goes. You want me on to read the rest? Yeah. Read stop the me rest when you me. want to talk about it. So then, the most important part of the letter, she says, is we believe that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. That the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class of people and never occurs in the average temperate drinkers. 
These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit, they have found that they cannot break it. Once having lost their self. Okay, so he's saying these allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all once having formed the habit. Yeah. So, like, there it is. It doesn't, it's not once they how, formed a habit or an how allergy. is an allergy? Right. How's an allergy? I don't have a habit of getting stung by bees to have an allergy. <laughs> Unless you're a beekeeper, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but even those guys, they don't get a habit of it to get an allergy of it. So that's that but, statement conflicts with itself. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that is says, the third part of this. Rebe how can alcohol be an allergen that is only activated once the habit is formed? All right. So then the third section that says, in this statement, he, Dr. Silkworth, confirms we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality or were outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. So they're saying that there's a physical problem with your body that causes alcohol to be a problem. And in my opinion, what we know now is that alcohol causes physical problems to your body. It does. Alcohol is a poison and causes physical. Yes. Right. It's not your body that's abnormal. Yes. And it's not really your mind that's abnormal because our minds are created to change with the environment. Yes. Yes. Um, it's the poison. Go ahead. Well, here's there's the end of the thing. Oh, yeah. But you go. There's a fourth. Go ahead. You're a better reader. As far as we are concerned, alcoholism is an illness, a progressive illness, which can never be cured, but which, like some other illnesses, can be arrested. We are perfectly willing to admit that we are allergic to alcohol and that it is simply common sense to stay away from our source of our allergy. Yes. Yes, it makes sense to stay away from it. And, you know, in the olden days, a hundred years ago, they're going to call it an allergy that they have to stay away from. And that's sort of how AA is formed. I think it works. It works. I don't think it works for me, but those people aren't drinking. And that's all that really matters. Well, I know that my mom has 28 or 38 years. I can't remember. It's 20. It's probably more like 38 years of. Are you still trying to get that bottle undone? I can't stop trying. <laughs> She's trying. You guys, she has this bottle of like glue or is it glue? It's or nail polish. polish. Oh, no. She's got rubber bands around the cap and everything to try to get a better grip. I and can't stop trying. Get it's a grip. Gonna... Would you, Sarah? Get a grip. Get a grip. No, it's funny. You can think about trying. just breaking it so I'll stop. Um, my mom has mom. probably 38 years of experience or AA. She's like, she can quote the the big book and make it sound really enticing another yeah. friend of mine has 17 years this is what really worked for them we see a lot of people that this works for and this is part of their belief system is what yes. what's written here too so we're talking to the people that don't really believe in this you don't have to be you don't have to believe in this if this isn't working for you is what annie grace is trying to do right here is she's trying to train our subconscious by she's trying to educate our minds so that we have a different concept of of how to get out of our addiction totally and she's definitely using kind of psychology that we know now you know aa was built in 1934 and it still works you can poke holes in it you know like i said but she's using stuff that we know now and to me her stuff just shot right to my brain Let's get back to chapter one on this. She uses liminal thinking and she told yes. us she's going to educate us to change how we think, how we, she's going to change our beliefs. She's going to change our subconscious thinking by educating our conscious thinking about our, and we're so, going to think about our thinking. 
So that's what she's doing right here. So yeah. Before anybody gets offended. A lot of people that haven't got into AA have not, it hasn't worked for them are picking up this book, this naked mind. Yeah. Because yeah. it's giving them another option. Okay. Well, that's not working for me. So what do I do? So she's helping them change their belief system and their subconscious by what her research has shown her. Yes. So. And I, I think this is where she really nails it is because she says, I have to point out the danger of this physical flaw theory. And that is that it creates an us and them mentality. It does. Where she's like, they have a physical flaw. I don't have that physical flaw. I just like to party. <laughs> and so that's what keeps you trapped. It keeps you drinking. It, it, instead of having these two boxes of problem drinkers and fun drinkers, she goes, she knocks on the walls and she goes, hey, we're all here standing in the same room. And it's important for you to consider that you might have a problem. And I think that our greater society thinks that in order to have a drinking problem, you have to have a strain of DUIs. You have to have this awful rock bottom. You have to have a divorce and your kids taken away from you and just drinking during the day, fired from your job. It's got to be that dramatic. And I don't know if it was Annie Grace that said it or somebody on IAS that said, you don't have to be at the rock bottom to quit drink, to look at your drinking just at a crossroads. Right, right. Just at a crossroads. And yeah. Are, and I don't some, think some people in IAS that were just at a crossroads. Totally. Right. And they never had to go as far as, well, I mean, you've never gone as far as I've had to go. Right. Um, uh -uh. You got to a certain, I think I was at a crossroads. I think it was a problem, but I think I was at a crossroads. Right. And you never ended up in jail. Any DUI? No. A hospital. No, I didn't. No, I was just a fun party girl. But and I was like, got, something's got to give. And you got to a point where one night you ended up in a fight with your husband and you're like, mm -hmm. I, I'm sick of fighting like this, basically. Yeah. Right? How about this? I'm going to try this. So, and I think that our society doesn't, our society doesn't do well with the whole like um, alcoholism as a spectrum and you just have to be at a crossroads. I think that it's got to be real bad. And she said that she says, oh, she told a friend that she quit drinking and the lady said, I can't imagine what you must have been through in order to make that decision. It was clear. She assumed that I had hit some rock bottom experience. And I'll tell you what, that very thing right there is what kept me from even admitting that I quit drinking for about a year is because our society believes that if you quit drinking, you hit a rock bottom and something bad happened. It's embarrassing to have to quit drinking. Yes. It's embarrassing that you blew your wad. Everybody gets to do this fun thing you don't get to do. And that's actually not how it is at all. But maybe Big Boo's bought that idea because it they keeps have. people drinking. It they, keeps people drinking. Right. Well, they built this whole scenario of you don't have a problem until you get here. You're, yeah. You're, you're normal. They're abnormal. It's yeah. us and them. Yep. And then she and says I, right here, we, we see this physical flaw theory play out in every AA meeting. The meeting starts with a round of, hello, my name is blank and I am an alcoholic. Yeah. By forcing me to name the problem, I am a, an alcoholic, a person with a physical flaw that gives alcohol unreason, reasonable power and control over me. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes the affliction easier to deal with because they go, well, I'm not going to fight it. But I think that what you're doing, Drifter, I think it takes it one step further where you go, yeah, I can't fight alcohol. It wins every fucking time. So I'm not going to fight it anymore. But you know what I am going to do? I'm going to go into my brain and I'm going to rewire the pathways. Yes. And I'm going to make it weaker and myself stronger. And I think that, that that to me is one step further than what this is. For me, personally, that's what I think. But that's what Annie, Annie Grace gave us in chapter one. Yeah. Right? Here, you have mm -hmm. cog cognitive dissonance. Oh, what? I'm arguing with myself. I've got two thinking systems, right? Yeah. So in chapter one, Annie Grace gave us, uh, she she gave us the power to know that, hey, I got two thinking differences or systems so I can, and they're arguing and I need to change one of them so that they come in agreement versus, totally. versus that this is a, a psychological, physical, mental thing that I can never fix. Yeah, totally. Totally. 
And I think you're doing that. I think we all are. I think that's kind of what rewired is. And I think that's what just, I think that quitting drinking doesn't really solve all your problems. You, you have to also be working on the way you look at your problems, the way you look at any situation, the way you plan things, the way you solve things, because I just think that the, 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 if you're baking a cake of mental health, sobriety is the eggs. Okay. You're not going to have the cake. It's not going to be proper without the eggs, but you need the other ingredients, you know, like thinking about your thinking, um, observing your thinking. talked about this with Elaine's uh, therapist. I used that cake thing. Yeah. You did. And I heard that. What else is in your cake? (laughs) I love that. I don't actually bake that much. I, I don't actually even bake. I'm a terrible baker, but I know that baking is a science and there's certain things that have to be in there in order for it to come out successfully. And I think that's how like a proper mindfulness and mental health is. You have to have sobriety, but you also have to have the ability to think about your thinking. Right. So that you can, so that you can be happier. You're not just living on the run from alcohol, trying to outrun it, you know, and I, 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 for me, my goal is to have alcohol shrink in my rearview mirror and not even be something I think about. That actually, what I'm thinking about is my contentment, my happiness, the way the flowers smell, the way the grass is green. Well, Instead of that is your life. It. That is your life now, and and basically yeah. your life. Everything else is giving back. The way I see it. Yeah. Totally. Totally. You, you do not we're, we're, sit there and stress over alcohol or you're not planning how you're going to get your next drink, but you are excited about maybe Wednesdays or Saturdays when you get to be around like-minded people and share. Yeah. That becomes exciting. For sure. For sure. For sure. And I do, I do read, you know, a lot so that I can, you know, be prepared for talks like this with you. So I can try to help other people. It's like, it's about service, you know, but I'm not reading so that I can outrun that glass of wine. No, not. Do you know anymore, what I mean? Like not. I'm not trying not to drink. I'm, I'm done drinking. You're educating yourself with, uh, for the sober baddies with what you're doing with the sober mm-hmm. baddies. You and Elaine. Mm-hmm. It's really cool because I'm doing the same thing. I don't educate myself now because I'm fighting those corrupted pathways in my mind. They're already sealed up. Yep. I'm educating myself yep. to try to keep giving back now. Huge yeah. difference. And to get your, your new pathways strong and healthy. Yes. That's well, what you're doing is you're, you're not focusing on killing the bad. You're focusing on building the new. And I think that's the key to any growth. Yeah. And there's just something about getting sober that makes you, um, you want to reach back and pull that other person out of that dark hole. It is. It is. It is. And I think I've said it before. I mean, it's like I'm on a vacation island. And I'm just saying, dude, it's really nice here. It is. Come on. You're over there scraping the fucking frost off your windshield. And I'm like, bro, bro, bro. It doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> right. <laughs> so after the us and them, she gets into the gene thing. Yeah. Awesome. Right. Where's the part? I wrote boom. What did I write boom at? Oh, yeah. It's just the thing about how, about how instead of treating alcohol with caution because we know it to be dangerous and addictive. We reassure ourselves that we are different from those flawed people who are alcoholics and it keeps people drinking. That, that's, it, it that's does. Boom. So we kind of talked about this already about the, our, our genes, right? We kind of, yes. that out there. we're not predisposed, even though we may have, Mm-mm. even though we, there may be genes that are affected from our, our parents or genetically. However, it doesn't determine yeah. it's the repetitive drinking. that. Yes. Yes. And she does think that an alcoholic should be defined as someone who is no longer has the ability to restrain their drinking. That's what that's what an alcoholic is. A lot of times this definition, they don't really recognize it until they have already lost control. A lot of people dwell in limbo. I spent 10 years in limbo. You think you were an alcoholic? I think, I think alcohol was a problem for me. I think if alcohol is causing problems in your life, and if, if you can't really envision your life without it, 
you need to take a look at your relationship. Right. I call that alcohol dependency. Uh, mm-hmm. Do I need to admit every day that I'm an alcoholic? So say that I go and I go to a detox center to help me get off the alcohol and I'm not physically addicted to it anymore. Am I still an alcoholic? That's just so tricky. I think that I think that the answer to that question depends on whether or not it serves you. For some people, it serves them to say that they're alcoholics and it helps them stay the course. For some people, it makes them feel embarrassed and ashamed. So when you have cancer and you've been cured of cancer, are you do you still have cancer or are you a cancer survivor? Well, then what does that mean? Are you an alcohol survivor? That's actually that's actually maybe we should make T-shirts like I survived alcoholism. <laughs> right. Uh. I survived an alcohol dependency and I live to tell about it. www.sobertownpodcast.com. Boom. But it gets back <laughs> to what serves you, right? Yeah, it does. It does. It does. It does. And I think that's all that matters. And my aunt said it. She's so funny. She goes, now, I think it's cute that you kids are getting sober on the Wi-Fi or whatever it is. But as long as you're not drinking, I don't care what you're doing. And I, I believe in that. I, I'm not going to try to dispel millions of people who have gotten sober with it. I think, I think it's, it's sobriety is where you need to be. So, again, this is what Annie has done with Chapter 2, basically. She's laid out some some things for us to think about. Is it a disease or isn't it a disease? And these are things that people are going to have to sort out for themselves too. Um, Yeah, for sure. But she does say the point of addiction or dependence is unknown to the drinker and generally not known until the drinker attempts to cut back. All right. So I got this dad joke about addiction. Okay. So there's these two guys, these two old guys, right? And every time they go to the hardware store, the one guy always buys brake fluid. He always buys it. And the other guy goes, dude, you have so much brake fluid. Like, are you like your garage is full of brake fluid? Why do you keep buying it? Like, are you addicted? And the guy goes, I'm not addicted. I can stop anytime I want to. <laughs> you know, because brakes, because right, the brakes right, make right. you be able to stop. I got it. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Oh, I got that in there. Let me just end the oh, yeah, end of the blame this. game. She goes, if you're not convinced whether or not, you know, you have a problem with alcohol, uh, that's okay. We'll talk more about this. What's important now is that you entertain the idea that you might not be fully in control of your drinking. Oh. Um, right. And that's where you do something about it. Yeah. I, when I went on the internet and I got, I am sober app. And I watched those days tick by. And then I found out there was a community and my life changed. Yeah, you know, I think I think the biggest part of everything is um, for me has been the IS community, big of every, time of, of, of everything, and then mm-hmm. what they've created outside of the IS community. Because you yep. hear guys like Lilo when they they couldn't even communicate in the beginning with each other; yeah. they could just pose. Mm-hmm. And then it's gone to where now they can we communicate, Zooms, podcasts. I mean, just everything has really come out of the IS community. Yeah, yeah, it's. Community is a big deal. And I, I do think that uh, to AA, that's probably one of their biggest successors, you know, is that they created a community for alcoholics yes. to meet up with like-minded people and get better together. Perfectly Imperfect was talking a little bit about that last night. I love her. Re, in the rewired Zoom, um, because she's not really using the AA format as much anymore, but that's what she loved about that's what she misses the most about getting in there because we're not mm-hmm. really having a lot of human contact right now. Because no, of COVID. Yeah. And she misses that human to human connection, those meetings. And that's one thing that I love about the AA community is that they have the, that community. Yeah. Yeah, dude. And it's like, like we could solve the world's problems over a shitty cup of coffee. We can. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So yep. the next, the next um, chapter three, right? I guess we're yeah, gonna- dude. If you guys are all listening, if you guys are still hanging, uh, we're gonna do chapter three because even honestly, for me, even if no one's listening to these episodes, Drifter, I love meeting up with you and going over this book because this book it changed my life, and I love digging into every paragraph 
because I, I think that it's so written and well laid out the order in which she does stuff. And she puts out a concept and you kind of chew on it for a little while. And then she builds something on top of it and you go, Oh wow. And then she builds something on top of that. And here we are. What are we like about 18 months now? You and I, Yep. that's yep. so rad. It's, and here I am because of this book. So I love doing it, even if nobody's listening. But if well, you are, well, they, there are people listening. I, I'm trying to draw that line to where we don't offend people with. This is a hard chapter to do without offending somebody. Chapter two. Right? It is. It is because she is not an AA person. Right. And her this route of getting sober doesn't really involve the AA ideologies. However. AA has gotten millions of people sober. Yep. So, and I respect you know, anybody that, um, how they go through those steps. That's a lot of hard work for them yeah. to do. You know, and the people yeah. that do get it, I mean, they're using those steps. They're, uh, they're confronting their, about their egos, you know, mm-hmm. humi- hum- uh, humility, um, mm-hmm. letting stuff go. I mean, there's a lot of things that these, they're getting out of the AA concept. And, mm-hmm. and I've finally gotten to a point where the, there's a few words that have always tripped me up, surrendering, powerlessness, disease. And I'm finally mm-hmm. to the point where, you know what, it doesn't really matter to me anymore. Yep. But yep. With this, this book, it does matter in this book because she's trying to use a separate system to yeah. retrain your and educate your subconscious. So totally. for her writing this book, it's, it's, this chapter is really important. Uh, real quick before we go, do you have any sobriety tattoos? No. Oh. No, I just got. This is my. What mermaid. Do you got? Let's do tattoo corner. This is my mermaid, right? Oh, nice. And um, I used to have a WB, and then I was being, I was on the run. Yes. You know, for William my middle- Bradley. Yes. <laughs> so William Bradley Cott. Boom. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was on the run and they knew about my WB. So I ran into a tattoo joint and I had been a merchant Marine for a few years. So I put a mermaid on my arm. That's awesome. Right. That's awesome. All right. I'll share one of my tattoos. Okay. So this right here on the right Right. on the ball of my elbow is an eyeball is an eyeball. And I got it because in a lot of cultures, it um, it signifies like kind of a safety, like a, basically if anybody's looking at you with ill will, this eyeball reflects that back on them. Oh, it's kind of like cool. a mirror. So it's kind of a protection thing. But I got it because it's the most painful place, I think, to get a tattoo. And I wanted to endure some pain because when I got sober, I found that there's beauty in pain. And so I wanted to get a tattoo in the most painful spot I could find. I wanted to look like a badass. This is also something like if anybody, no one's really, it's, it's kind of envy is one of the, the ill will sentiments that it protects from. And I feel like now that I'm sober, I'm living this beautiful life. And it's possible that someone might look at me with envy. So I'm just going <laughs> to bounce that right back to them. That's and my cool. eyes are open. It's an eyeball because, dude, my eyes are open. They are. All right. And you have a beautiful future. Then I have my other one. I don't know if you can see yeah, how the bob wire is broken right there. Oh, nice. And that's because when I went to prison in 2002, I was, I, I got the bob wire, but I had it so it wasn't connected. So because I had broken the chain back then of my addictions when I went and that, then I was sober for nine years, but that's awesome. Here's the thing. Don't ever, if you get sober, don't pick back up. Cause yep. I don't care. I don't care how you got sober. If it was um, spontaneous sobriety or what. Yeah. If you pick back up, you're going to fire up that, that pathway that you yeah. worked so hard to shut yep. down and Fucking it becomes a. alive and boom, it lights up like New York city. Yeah, it does. It does. It doesn't take time to rebuild. It goes, Oh yeah, here we are. Yeah, sure. like plugging in your freaking Christmas tree. Boom, that yep. lights up. Yep, well said. Dang. You know, somebody on here said, I don't drink because I've always got another drink in me, but I don't know if I have another sober in me. Right. Well, it took me nine years. I was nine years sober, and it literally t- took me nine years to get sober again. So. Uh, 
I'm so glad you're here. And I feel like I, I don't know your whole entire history, but whatever it is, it brought you right here, right now, to it's Tattoo enough, Corner, it's the Drifter in this misses. It's enough to um where I'm in a fight now and I'm in a war. And I'm gonna bring this fight. I'll probably die fighting this fight now because it killed my brother. Yep. And I'm pissed. Yep. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I know. And, it, and it's I killed know. a lot of people. And it, it and every one of us, it's affected our lives, our kids' lives, or something, some way. I, I just hope more people just get pissed off of what it's done. But our brain tricks us. And then we're like, by five o'clock, we forget of all the damage it's done. Right. Yeah. Well, society tricks us. Yeah. So, well, fucking A, Drifter. This has been rad, dude. This thank has been you. so rad to sit down and chill out with you. I know. Can, you know what? It says we've been at this too. Two hours and two minutes. I may have to chop some up. <laughs> <laughs> I may have to chop some. Well, don't chop up. off the tattoo corner. Okay, I won't. And remember, pour the poison down the sink. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.